Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us today on the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Uh, Jim, we've got good, bad, and crazy martinis today. So back to the normal format. We will get to Gordon Sondland in just a moment. That's the bad martini. But uh, let's start with the good martini. We've got a little bit of good news. We'll see how much of a difference this actually makes, if it in fact becomes law. But the U.S. Senate has passed by voice vote the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. The House of Representatives has passed its own version, so they've got to be reconciled and voted on again. But it looks like there's pretty much broad-based support for this, even though President Trump uh, has not given any indication whether he would sign such a thing. You would like to think so, but given how little he's said about Hong Kong over the past few months, you have to wonder. But uh, given what we saw in the Senate and the House, uh, a veto, if he actually were to give one, might be overridden. Uh, So what does this thing actually do? According to NBC News, uh, the bill would give the Secretary of State, currently Mike Pompeo, obviously, uh, uh, the Secretary of State would have to certify at least once a year that Hong Kong retains enough autonomy to qualify for special U.S. trading consideration that bolsters its status as a world financial center. It would also provide sanctions against officials responsible for any human rights violations in Hong Kong. Uh, In addition, the Senate passed a second bill, also unanimously, that would ban the export of certain munitions to Hong Kong police forces, including tear gas, pepper spray, rubber bullets, and stun guns. So, Jim, I'm not sure either one of these are enough to uh, deter the Chinese from rolling into Hong Kong whenever they feel like it, but uh, it's good to see that somebody's actually paying attention to this because up till this moment, uh, most people in Washington haven't had much to say about it at all. Yeah, uh, I would really, you know, as good as this is, I'd still love to see a full-throated presidential denunciation of a crackdown in Hong Kong, but apparently we're not going to get that. Uh, At the very least, the White House could and should uh, sign this into law, you know, ASAP. Um, To be perfectly honest, I I think probably the single most consequential aspect of that list you, you put there would be if anyone is identified as playing a role in the crackdown, um, basically a travel ban and, and sanction, individual sanctions against the bank accounts, stuff like that. Uh, I don't know if any of these Chinese officials plan on doing any business in the United States or plan on traveling to the United States anytime soon, but this is the sort of thing we should not be rolling out the red carpet for people who abuse uh, or commit human rights, rights abuses. You know, like the Turkish president. Um, But also for, you know, we we should just generally say, look, you do this kind of stuff. You're not welcome here in the United States. And we will make it as difficult as possible for you to try to get any money through here. The other um, aspect there, I'd be surprised if we were exporting rubber bullets or any other major material to the Hong Kong police force. And if so, am I going to ask Why? (laughs) You know, it's not like these guys were warm and fuzzy to begin with. Um, now I'm going to find out, Greg, at some point. Probably, probably it's probably some part of the export import bank. You know, we were we were paying U.S. companies to send uh, uh, this kind of material to Hong Kong authorities. But again, any effort on the part of the U.S. government to say to the Chinese government, "This is not acceptable. You cannot start cracking down on these people violently." Uh, you pushed them first by trying to enact a system in which they would be extradited to China for any crimes. Um, they've got every right in the world to do this, and we are watching. You cannot run a rerun of Tiananmen Square. We'll see if it does any good, but this is the sort of thing the United States should be doing as, you know, that old title of leader of the free world, arsenal of democracy, all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, you know, to get countries' attention, you usually have to target something that they care about. Uh, we'll see if the contents of this legislation actually do that. Uh, I'm not convinced of that, but again, uh, at least putting rhetorical pressure and a, a few pieces of concrete measures, including the sanctions in place, could do some good. But I think you're right. The president's going to have to do a lot more, and even lawmakers might end up having to do a lot more. And of course, um, I assume the president is uh, playing it coy right now because he's trying to get a trade deal done with the Chinese. But uh, sometimes you've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And uh, so far, he hasn't done that. Speaking of the president... Hong Kong is not his biggest concern this morning or this afternoon, depending on when you hear this. Um, Gordon Sondland uh, is currently the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. Pretty sure he still has this job by the time you uh, hear it later today. But uh, he testified before the House impeachment inquiry on Wednesday. And uh, let's just say it wasn't a, a good testimony for the president for the most part. Uh, we've been dancing around some of these central issues to this investigation so far from people who weren't actually in contact with the president. But now Gordon Sondland, who was in touch with the president and more exclusively in touch with Rudy Giuliani, uh, answering the question of whether there was a quid pro quo. And it's not the answer the president was probably looking for. Mr. Giuliani's requests were a quid pro quo for arranging a White House visit for President Zelensky. Mr. Giuliani demanded that Ukraine make a public statement announcing the investigations of the 2016 election DNC server and Burisma. Mr. Giuliani was expressing the desires of the President of the United States, and we knew these investigations were important to the President. But the one thing he didn't mention there, of course, was the uh, suspended aid. Was that related? Sondland never actually got an answer to that, but he thinks it was. I tried diligently to ask why the aid was suspended, but I never received a clear answer. Still haven't to this day. In the absence of any credible explanation for the suspension of aid, I later came to believe that the resumption of security aid would not occur until there was a public statement from Ukraine committing to the investigations of the 2016 elections and Burisma, as Mr. Giuliani had demanded. And he said the same thing under questioning from the Democratic Council. Is this kind of a two plus two equals four conclusion that you reached? Pretty much. It's the only logical conclusion to you that, given all of these factors, that the aid was also a part of this quid pro quo? And perhaps uh, on top of that, Jim, you've got uh, Sondland testifying that uh, it wasn't actually all that important that Ukraine conduct the investigation, but just make the public statement that they would, because uh, that would potentially give the president what he wanted. Now, from the uh, Republican side of the aisle, uh, they did get Sondland to admit what the president directly had to say to him about a quid pro quo. But I believe I just asked him an open-ended question, Mr. Chairman. What do you want from Ukraine? I keep hearing all these different ideas and theories and this and that. What do you want? And it was a very short, abrupt conversation. He was not in a good mood. And he just said, I want nothing. I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. Tell Zelensky to do the right thing. Something to that effect. Jim, why do I get the feeling most conversations with Trump are uh, shortened, that he's not in a very good mood? But uh, what do you make of the, uh, the fallout from this testimony? The Democrats are certainly in a very cheery mood today. Yeah, this is bad. If I could put gifts into this podcast, I would use the one from Mad Men. 
which uh, one of the characters is asked how his day is going. And of course, throughout the episode, we've seen everything that could go wrong, possibly go wrong. And he responds, not great, Bob. How was today for the president? It was not great, Greg. Um, <laughs> I think what's probably the most significant aspect is that for quite a while now, in fact, since this first came, you know, this information first came forward, the argument from a lot of defenders of the president, a lot of folks on Fox News, the White House was, look, Yes, the president, you know, had concerns about aid going to Ukraine and that it might be wasted and that maybe he wasn't as supportive of Ukrainian military defenses against Russia and all that stuff. But, you know, but it was totally different from his desire to see a full investigation into Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. They were completely unconnected concerns. It was not held up because of a demand for a Hunter Biden investigation. And, uh, you know, they kept emphasizing no quid pro quo. Well, here comes Sondland saying, yeah. It was a quid pro quo. And quite a few folks have looked at this. And I, I think the, the concept of quid pro quo, without using the words quid pro quo, in the readout of that call with President Zelensky, Trump, as soon as, Trump, as soon as Zelensky mentions the javelins, Trump says, I want you to do me a favor. No, he never quite comes out and says, look, well, if you want those javelins, then you had better do, you know, he doesn't quite go that clear, but it's pretty clear. Everything Sondland is saying is that everybody, everybody was in the loop and everybody knew exactly what was going on. Everybody knew these two issues were connected and that the president was not going to go, did not want to go forward with the aid to the to Ukraine unless they helped him investigate Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. The White House could have skipped about six weeks of In Watergate, they used to say this statement is no longer operative, right? This is no longer a plausible line of defense because Sondland has now said Yes, this was a quid pro quo. Everybody knew it was a quid pro quo. Now the argument for Republicans have is this is not impeachable, um, which is not going to be an easy argument, but they certainly can still try to do it and say, look, of course, the president has the authority to ask a foreign government to investigate one of his potential political rivals. And he has the authority to hold up congressionally appropriated military aid to a allied country. No, no. <laughs> that's, I'm sorry. That's just not going to fly right here. The best argument Republicans can have is to say, you know what? We're less than a year from the election. Let's leave it for the voters to decide um, that this would represent an you know, ending of a president. We've never done this before. I put this argument, by the way, earlier this week, saying that this is a decision that should be left to the American people. And man, did people give me grief about this on, on, uh, on Twitter. Man, every last one of you, Trump humper, you, you know, right? I mean, I'm saying this is really bad. This should have consequences. Absolutely, the president, but let the, let the people decide. Of course, you're a president of Trump now. But this is where the president has left the Republicans. There isn't really a great defense to say, no, this is terrific. This is fine. It's totally normal for a president to demand foreign countries to do this. Um, and this is coming from a guy who thinks that what Joe Biden and Hunter Biden were doing, I think it was pretty clearly Burisma Holdings attempting to purchase friendship in Washington and to make sure that they had a friend in high places in the Obama administration. That's really bad, but Trump has managed to screw this all up because whatever's going on, you're not supposed to do it through the president's lawyer and you're not supposed to tie it to uh, holding up uh, congressionally appropriated funds. Bad, bad, bad. Jim, let's talk about the Democrats overplaying their hand because the Republicans are always accused of overplaying their hand or having it suggested that they would when things go their way. So you have Nancy Pelosi out there saying, well, we can't just wait for the election because the president is actively meddling in the election. And so it's a threat to our democracy to leave him in office, to have him have the people have the referendum on him. What's your reaction to that? I mean, again, this is the, the, the probably the best argument for for Donald Trump is to say, look, you know who this guy is. You know he berates his underlings. You know he is, when he wants something, he wants it. 
Uh, what you said earlier about him, you know, it's not surprising. He'd be, he'd be curt on the phone and in a bad mood. You knew what you were getting. You knew this is part of the price of him, but he's getting good stuff done. The economy's roaring. We're securing the border, blah, 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 blah. Go ahead and make that argument. You know, that is the strongest argument for the president's reelection. And, oh, by the way, I think you can add a lot of sense of, like, look, oh, by the way, a whole bunch of Democrats have wanted to impeach the president from the beginning. But all of that is a, hey, what do you think of the president question? It's not, you know, what do you think of what the president did in these particular circumstances question. One other point I think we should throw out here, Greg, for everyone who's saying, you know, ah, Jim and Greg have gone soft on the president. Um, the, uh, the, the Politico's newsletter, um, that other morning newsletter said today that they've talked to GOP House leaders and they say not a single House Republican is going to vote for impeachment on any charge. Uh, House Democratic sources are saying they think that every House Democrat will vote to impeach. We are going to get a straight party line vote. Let's remember the vote for the inquiry was party line, except for two Democrats who voted no. We all know how this is going to end. And yet we got to go through this whole process, you know, step by drudgery step for the next couple of months, Greg. And overplaying their hand part two. And we've talked about this before, but uh, as Sondland's testimony unfolded today, he kept saying everybody was in the loop, mainly referring to Rudy Giuliani, as well as the president, uh, as well as Mick Mulvaney, Pompeo, folks on the, the detail like, like Taylor and Volcker and, and all these names that we're now learning. Uh, he also mentioned that because Trump stayed home to tend to the hurricane in early September, Mike Pence went to the 80th anniversary of the start of World War II in Poland, and Sondland had a brief opportunity to uh, explain his concern about the aid being held up to Pence. And now you've got, trending at the top of Twitter, President Pelosi, because now Mike Pence is deeply intertwined in here, and he's got to go to. Right? I mean, this is, you know, we've never done a, a forced removal of a president from office before. What we, you know, we certainly have never even had, there was never a simultaneous, and we got to get rid of Gerald Ford at the same time back during Watergate or anything like that. Nobody was saying, and we've got to impeach Al Gore too. You know, like this is the first time we've ever seen anybody say, well, really the president, uh, the entire administration should be removed. And, you know, we, we've joked in the past about how they want to get rid of uh, Brett Kavanaugh and they want to get rid of Gorsuch and, you know, these guys have impeachment fever. One of the arguments that Democrats have, you know, you don't have to look too hard to find a whole bunch of people who are right of center who are less than thrilled with the uh, uh, Trump's habits, and the way he handles Twitter and various other you know, problems of his administration. When they say, but Pence might be worse, they give away the game. And it indicates that this is a, you know, these are folks who just hate Republicans. They just hate Trump. And he's just a different variety of the same kind of Republican they've always hated from the beginning. Jim, it's a little bit different, but uh, you know how uh, the Clintons have now come under new scrutiny because of the, the Me Too situation? And, oh, 20 years after the fact, maybe maybe Bill Clinton shouldn't have gotten away with that and so forth. Um, do you think there'll be any renewed uh, intrigue into the Chinese fundraising scandal from the 1996 campaign, which uh, conveniently became a, a dud, uh, or at least in the eyes of the media, uh, when they were taking money uh, pretty brazenly from the Chinese and Al Gore was sent to the the Buddhist temple, or is that uh, that too far into the weeds and too far into the history books now? You know, Greg, I'm, I'm sure any minute now NBA players are going to start talking about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, like we've changed our viewpoints, very revealing about the United States, about, you know, the, the, the mainstream media and kind of the general overall perspective of the United States. It's OK to speak critically of the Clintons now. They're out of power. The Chinese government still has as much power as ever and perhaps even more. 
<laughs> so now, now, I don't think they'll be, hey, you know, China's been trying to bribe our candidates for a really long time. Uh, they're not going to go into that, not because they need to defend the Clintons anymore, but because they need to defend China. Nope. If we look too hard at what China's doing, we might not want to trade with them anymore. <laughs> you know, who knows what could happen then? No controlling legal authority, uh, for those of you old enough to remember. I it. drank a lot of iced tea that day, and I may have been outside in the bathroom when they said, don't do those fundraisers at that temple. <laughs> That's my Al Gore, everyone. And everyone's forgotten about him. He's Excellent. Funny. Yes, yes. He's uh, saving the planet. Lockbox. <laughs> All right. Well, it's okay to criticize the Clintons now. It's apparently not okay to criticize President Obama. Uh, this just developed over the past couple of days where the United Nations came out with a report suggesting that 100,000 migrant children were in U.S. detention, mainly along the southern border. And Reuters and uh, AFP and a lot of different uh, media outlets uh, blasted this up, slapped it on the top of their websites, put it out in their publications and so forth. And then the U.N. corrected the record. Here's the AFP tweet from yesterday, which I personally love. AFP is withdrawing the story. The author of the report has clarified that his figures do not represent the number of children currently in migration-related U.S. detention, but the total number of children in migration-related U.S. detention in 2015. We will delete the story, not put a correction on it, not make it clear that, hey, this wasn't actually the number during the Trump administration, but it was the Obama administration. Nope, it was 2015. It was the Obama administration. It must be erased from existence. Yeah, so there's there's two aspects of this story that I think are pretty interesting. The first is Donald Trump got elected, if not entirely on the issue of immigration, but then very largely because of the issue of immigration and because he had made a rather compelling argument that the past two administrations, the Obama administration and the Bush administration, had both failed to secure the southern border, that illegal immigrants were flowing over the border in in large numbers, that we had, you know, 11 million illegal immigrants, but that number was really just an estimate that, you know, nobody knew exactly how many there there were. You know, there could be considerably more. Um, that whatever, you know, whether Manuel the busboy at the corner restaurant was a nice guy, inevitably some of them were gang members, MS-13 members, drug dealers, you know, uh, violent criminals. You know, those folks needed to be sent back at minimum. And in fact, we should prevent anybody else from coming in illegally. Uh, And in fact, some folks on the left have been so bonkers about this that they decided to create sanctuary cities that they basically believe the U.S. should not be in in the position of enforcing its immigration laws that in order to become an American, all you had to do was show up and get here, right? It was a fairly strong argument. Little details, though, that the fact that, you know, particularly in that first term for Barack Obama, they actually did increase the number of deportations, the number of people getting captured. Um, Late in the Bush years, they did enact a border security law. This is where you get a lot of that vehicle fencing and, uh, uh, you know, the ones where you've got, like, posts in the ground that prevent cars from coming through. But if you're trying to cross on foot, it's very easy. Um, that there was some border security that was put up there. We can very much argue about whether it was sufficient, whether it was uh, effective. Like I said, I, I refer everybody to the uh, retired head of the Border Patrol Union and his perspective about how we need more fencing, but not a, a Great Wall of China rebuilt on our southern border. But anyway, Obama was tougher on this, particularly in that first term. Then this started irritating liberals. Um, and then uh, kind of you started seeing the, the tapering off of the enforcement there. But that actually was border enforcement under President Obama. And as a result of that, you ended up having people detained and not only deported, some of them were kept. 
uh, in conditions that most Americans would not find particularly scenic, including the quote unquote kids in cages. Let's point out, every prison is a cage of one form or another. Um, when, you have, when you have kids and when you, have, when you catch families coming across the border, what do you want to do with this? What do you want to do with them, right? Um, and you, you, if you try to keep them together, well, ordinarily, you're going to separate the men and the women in most cases. And then the question is, how do you separate the, uh, the, the children with them? Like, the, you're, you're detaining people who have broken the law. They might be the most decent folk you've ever seen, but they have broken the law and they must be kept in a condition. You know, they must be held. Otherwise, they're going to run off and they're never going to show up for a court appointment. So what do you want to do with these folks? The Obama administration struggled with the exact same issues the Trump administration struggled with. The difference is the Obama administration managed to do some things that, again, don't look good when you see the pictures of them. But the media never had all that much interest. And then once you again, we've seen file photos of kids in these cages that you know, date back to 2015, used to accompany articles about how terrible it is what the Trump administration is doing now. And nobody seems to gather that contradiction there. Um, I look at this stuff as saying, look, you should, you know, anybody who's being detained, anybody in a prison, uh, you know, this isn't the Tower of London. We're, we don't believe in, you know, torturing people. We should try to treat people who are in our custody humanely, respect their rights. You know, you, you want to keep kids, you know, make sure kids are treated well. And in circumstances where you do believe that it's safe to reunite them with their parents, do so. Nobody wants to be cruel and heartless. Um, we certainly wouldn't want to separate a child from his family, like, you know, we're the, uh, like, Elian Gonzalez, right, Greg? Oh, oh, that circumstance, it was okay. All right, never mind. But these are tough situations. You want to enforce a border policy, this is going to be one of the consequences. Um, you're going to have to put people in detention, and they're going to be in circumstances they're not going to like, and you're going to have to separate people. Um, and this is, you know, but, but it's one of those things, like, the perspective of the media is they don't want to acknowledge the fact that it happened under Obama because he was the precious, and he must be protected at all costs. But anything that happened before Trump took office can sort of be like a little bit of like, you know, Doc Brown's DeLorean. You can kind of transfer it through time and blame the Trump administration, even though Trump had not taken power. Yet. Jim, I just did some quick math in my head. You want to feel old? Elian, sure. Gon- Elian Gonzalez is now in his mid-20s. <sighs> I have always hoped and dreamed that at some point, like he would be a hero of the Cuban regime and he would be trotted out for all these propaganda events and he would take and say all the right things and he would denounce the United States and he would thank Castro, blah, 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 blah. And then he would finally come all the way to become head of state, the new <laughs> ruler of Cuba, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And then once he had absolute power, he'd say, nah, just kidding. I loved it in Miami. We are free. We're now allied with the United States. We're free. We're having free elections. No more suppression all that kind of stuff. That'd be great. I'd like to think that a little bit of time in Miami, planted that seed, but uh, I guess only time will tell, right? Exactly. As long as he didn't have to watch the Dolphins. All right. <laughs> well, I mean, we, he was treated well in this country. Until, uh, until, until the government bursted down the door. <laughs> until Janet Reno showed up. Anyway, ancient history at this point. Jim, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Enjoy. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thank you for being with us today. So glad you're here. We will be here tomorrow. In the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a nice review, and tune in Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.